0: Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com and at storymen.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. And we will begin. Did you discover any Old Testament scholars in your midst? Anyone boldly proclaim that they are a 7 or an 8 or a 12 in familiarity with the Old Testament? You didn't have negatives. <laughs> no, zero is the lowest you can go. Um, had a few zeros, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so this is week five of our journey together. We started out in the first week talking more generally about how we do theology in general. We talked about the uh, definition of theology as words about God, and so the idea that everyone in our culture uh, talks about God. Everyone's having spiritual conversations. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know how many of you have gotten to go see the film Gravity, Uh, That just came out. It's phenomenal, but there's a really fascinating moment in it where the lead character is pretty sure she's going to die, which, if you've seen the trailer, is basically the whole movie. Um, But she she starts talking about wanting to pray, but not knowing how, because no one's ever taught her how to pray. And uh, it's just it's a really again, yeah, I was I was you know being in this class with you guys and then watching this film, I was just struck yet again uh, how there is another yet another film that's out, that's, you know, getting a lot of conversation in our culture, and has some particular things to say about God and about faith and about how we even live faithfully. I mean, anytime you talk about prayer, that's what you're talking about. And so this film uh, could not, you know, couldn't go 90 minutes without bringing that up. And so uh, what we wanted to do as a part of this class is not necessarily learn how to be theologians, because we're all theologians. We all think about God. We all talk about God. We wanted to learn how to be good theologians. And so we, uh, we charted out based on our particular theological tradition, the Wesleyan holiness tradition that the church of the Nazarene is a part of, a framework or a guide for how we do theology. And that comes from four sources. Uh, The first, most obvious one probably for most of us is scripture, that the the Bible is our source of theology. Uh, The second is our experiences. I'm not doing these in order that I have before, but like how we experience God and how we see God working in the world. Uh, Another one is the tradition of the church, not just the 100-year tradition of the Church of the Nazarene, but also the 2,000-year tradition of the whole church, uh, of the the organization, the the community that was began by Jesus after his resurrection. And then finally is uh, reason, our own ability to reason and think and talk and debate and consider, uh, which we're obviously doing a lot of in here. And so we use all four of these working together to help us understand God and to help guide our words about God. Uh, And so that's what we've been doing. We started out with the Trinity, talking about what it means to say that God is three but also one, and how uh, that three in oneness provides us with a safe, if a little bit confusing way to talk about God. It helps us steer clear of some of the the bad or the unhelpful uh, ways that we we talk about God or that that we hear people talking about God. One of the most important things that we saw in this doctrine of the Trinity is that that God is most fully God. God is most basically self-giving love. And so that's why it's so important that God is a trinity because God is a being that can give and receive inside of himself without needing anything outside of himself. And so creation is a byproduct not of God's need or God's um, any, any kind of like a codependency or something like that. But it's it's an, it's an overflow of God's love and the joy that comes from giving. And so God created – the third week we talked specifically about creation – and our role in it. We saw that God created a world in which to live with us. Uh, we saw that the the way that the ancient people understood the creation was the creation as a cosmic temple, and that the last thing you do when you build a temple in the ancient world was put an image of the God in, and that's how you knew the temple was finished. And so sure enough, in the creation story in Genesis 1, we have the construction of this cosmic temple, which is the whole universe, and the last thing that happens is God puts his image in that temple, which is humanity. And so we saw that there's this strong uh, tradition, this strong uh, rule, for lack of a better word, in the Hebrew religion and what we would today identify as Judaism of not making images, not making idols. That was a very common practice for all of the other religions of that time. But God said, no, I made an image of myself. You don't make images of me. Humanity is my image, and, and, and humanity belongs in this good creation with me. And so God's original plan was a, a world in which God and humanity could live together and work together, and humanity was invited into this sort of uh, beautiful divine partnership with God, where uh, we were meant to imitate God and do, you know, do the things that God did and live together with God and with each other. And last time we met a couple weeks ago, we talked about how that all went off the rails spectacularly and horribly uh, with sin, right? We talked about—we we spent a lot of time unpacking that story in Genesis 3 that we call the fall of these two trees that represented two different ways that God gave us to be like him, right? One was eternal life, and one was sort of the ability to be your own—to kind of make the world in your own way and to chart your own course in the world, to sort of set the rules that everyone has to live by, uh, to be a, you know, a God of your own little world. And God— gave us a free choice to do that, but invited us, in very strong language, to choose life. God's will for us, God's desire for us, was that we would eat of the tree of life and live with God in the garden forever. But we listened to some lies and thought that we didn't have enough, that all of the other trees in the entire world weren't enough to eat from, that unless we got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, unless we got that ability to self-govern, Unless we got to live in God's world on our terms instead of on God's terms, it was never going to be enough. So we chose poorly, and we introduced death into God's good, perfect creation. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about the aftermath of all of that. Uh, But that's where I want to pick up this week. This week, we're going to do our best to go through the whole Old Testament in about 70 minutes. Uh, So, woo! Uh, No. there's a fantastic scholar down at Asbury Theological Seminary down in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's only about three hours away named Sandra Richter. She has a, a phenomenal book about the Old Testament called The Epic of Eden. And she, in the introduction, says the Old Testament's like that junk closet that everyone has in their house that every time you walk by it, you're like, I should really get in there and organize that thing. And so you make a, you, know, you set aside a day that you're going to organize the junk closet, but then you open it up and everything is falling out. And so you just cram it all back in there and you're like, some other time. Um, but that's how we feel when we approach the Old Testament. There's all these like weird names and dates and like laws and crazy genealogies and all this stuff in there, and we're we're sure that there's we should probably get in there and figure it out. Like we're, there's probably some important stuff in there that would be helpful for our for our spirituality, and we're going to get around to it eventually figuring it out. But then we open it and we try to read something, and we're like, yeah, no, 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 okay, maybe some other time. I'll go back to the New Testament. Read some Jesus or read some Paul. Right? I mean, that's how uh, that's how I've felt about the Old Testament for a lot of years. Uh, and that's how I think a lot of us have an experience with that. The Old Testament seems really uh, intense and weird and and intimidating. So what Dr. Richter does in her book, The Epic of Eden, is she says, okay, I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament, and I'm going to basically help you organize your closet. I'm going to give you some shelves to stack some stuff on and some racks to hang things on. And um, by the time I get to the end of this, you're not going to be an expert in the Old Testament, but you'll at least have a helpful framework for being able to read through and kind of organize where things go. Uh, And so I'm actually basically just straight up stealing her uh, methodology here because it's just fantastic. Uh, The way that she organizes everything is through the lens of covenants. Okay, now again, if you've ever read much Bible at all, you've probably encountered the term covenant. Uh, It's one of the dominant metaphors in all of the Bible for understanding how God relates with us. And by the end of tonight, you will hopefully see why, if I do a good enough job. But there are five major covenants in the Old Testament, and if you can remember these five major covenants, which are connected with five individual persons, then you will be a long way down the road to having the Old Testament, kind of at least having some basic uh, handwork, or, uh, framework for holding on to uh, what God does in Israel in the Old Testament. And everything that we're going to do tonight is really going to be setting up who Jesus is and what, why he is so important, which is what next week is when we get to the doctrine of Jesus. And so tonight, like I said, we're going to go through the Old Testament. As always, we're going to go as quickly as we can while still making sure that you guys remember and comprehend everything. Uh, As always, the the point is not to finish. The point is to to make sure that you have an understanding of everything. So uh, please, by all means, if you have any questions or anything, stop me. Uh, Make sure we clarify stuff. Okay, good? Here we go. So uh, the first person, the first covenant is Adam, and we already kind of covered this last week. So we're just going to kind of do Adam and Noah, sort of as an introduction and review. Uh, Adam was Adam. Adam and Eve they were the they're the original image of God. Uh, you can think of them as a, as a model or a prototype of humanity, right? And the only problem with model or prototype is today when we think of a model or a prototype, we think of something that's not quite ready yet. Like you build a prototype and you're going to test it and stuff, and then you're going to fix it. Except that Adam was the like they were they were. So I don't know, whatever you call the first model, the first one off the line. Those of you who are in industries where you use this terminology can help me out. But um, that's what they were. They were humanity, right? Humanity 1.0. They were everything. Everything was great about them. They were exactly what God designed them to be. They were in this very good world. Um, They were meant to be the picture of God in the world, right? God's image. They were supposed to live. They were created to live in God's world on God's terms. And when they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what they stopped being. They went from living in God's world on God's terms to living in God's world on their terms. And everything after that uh, was a bad consequence of that. And if you remember, what God promised them was if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And sure enough, that's what happened. Rather than having life, they had death. But like we talked about last week, it wasn't just life or it wasn't just death for them. It was death for everyone and not just all people, but ultimately all of creation. So by the time you get to the flood story, which is what this beautiful picture here clearly represents, um, what you actually see. So when we think of the flood, we think of like it rained a lot, and so then like there was just like water everywhere, like you know, like a flood. Like we have floods to today. But really, what was happening in Genesis six, seven, and eight, which is where the main, the main Noah and the flood narrative is, is that creation itself was being undone. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 1, you see God, you know, one of the first things he does is he built a dome that keeps waters out and stuff like that. And so what happens here is that the firmament actually opens, and the fountains of the deep actually open. And so by the time you get to the end of Genesis 7, which is the flood, Genesis, uh, the world looks exactly like it did at the very beginning in Genesis 1-2, except for this one little book that has everything left that's not chaotic, uncreated mess sitting right here. And so what actually – it's really a fun thing to do. We don't have even close to enough time to do it now. But you can actually sort of compare the order of things and the way they happen in Genesis 1 with the order of things in Genesis 8. And there's this really similar sort of like recreation happening when the floodwaters recede of, you know, God re reestablishing land like with the mountain appearing, right? and uh, Reestablishing the seasons and stuff like that. And that all culminates in Genesis 9 with a new covenant between God and creation, right? And so the covenant's marked by a rainbow, and it's God's promise never again to allow human sin to destroy the world, right? Never again to to destroy the world with flood, that God God will preserve and make—essentially what God is promising here, and this is why this sets up the whole rest of the scriptures. God is essentially promising that human sin will never again um, undo creation, that God will continue to be present in creation and working in creation Despite the presence of human sin, he even said, he admits. Right, right. In, in there, God says it says he looks at the he says the human heart is evil and everything it wants to do is sinful. So I know, like he's he's like I know this. We're not we're not you know we're not being blind here. We're not pretending things are rosy when they're not. He's like I understand that sin is a continuing reality, but it's not going to destroy the world. Again. Does that make sense? It says it says he makes it with every creature. Not just humans, but all the animals and stuff, too. That there's this covenant between God and humanity. And the rainbow is the symbol of that. That every time it rains and then there's a rainbow in the sky, this is God remembering this covenant. Remembering that that no matter how sinful we get, we are not left to our own devices. Make sense? That's the first. That's, that's this, the Adam, the original covenant with Adam, right, where we'd be God's image bearers in the world. And then the covenant with Noah and with creation here. That God is not going to... Abandon human sin. Yeah, once again? That's the, we are, we are meant to be God's images in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Michael Lodal, who's the, the author that I quoted last time, he's uh, one of the main books I'm using in this class, along with Dr. Richter, said it this way. He said, Covenants are evidence of God's gracious willingness to love and sustain us in all our weakness and frailty, accepting us for what we are, while nurturing us toward what we can become, okay? So it's saying God is acknowledging human sinfulness, acknowledging that, that that's what we do. We all sin, but knowing that we can be this. We can be that good image of God that he created us to be. We all have within us that creative potential. And so a covenant, uh, actually, and, and probably a better word, one that we still use today, would be like treaty, Right? I mean, it's, that's essentially what a covenant was in the ancient world. It was like a treaty between two parties, an agreement between two parties. It, it was like a, a, a formalizing of a relationship, right? They, they might have had a handshake or whatever, but making the covenant was actually making it formal and public. So this, it's like a treaty that says that, that God is saying, I know you are who you are, and I know that you're going to sin, I know that you're going to fail, but I also know that you don't have to. And so the covenant is God's way of meeting us where we are, but continuing to call us to who we could be, who got who, and, and in other words, who we were created to be, right? This isn't like we are having to become something that we're not. Like we talked about last week, we we like to say that to you know that, that when we sin, oh, we're just human, but that's not what human is, right? Human is God's image bearer in the world, and sinning is is bending away from him. And so this is God saying, I know that you're broken, but I know that you can be whole. I know that I know that that's within you because I created it. And of course, we're not going to get there until next week, but we can see that here are the seeds, here are the seeds of the Jesus story. Here are the seeds of what it looks like for us to become whole in Jesus right here. Okay? Good? Good with Noah? Okay, see? Look how fast we're going. We're already to Genesis 12, you guys. We have just a few more chapters and books left. Uh, Okay, so the next person that enters onto the scene is Abraham, and I I put there in the scriptures for you Genesis chapter 12. Uh, This is... This is when in the Bible, everything kind of slows down and we start taking our time. Up until this point, we've been going like hundreds and thousands of years, you know, between chapters and stuff like that. Like, and now we kind of slow down and get extended uh, time with a few important individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, some of these names that if you had a kid's Bible or something like that when you were younger, you recognize. Um, so uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 begins like this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So this is the, this is the beginning of this covenant with Abraham. We're, we're doing with Abram. Uh, I'm going to just start calling him Abraham. Oftentimes when you do some kind of a covenant like this, God had them change their names. So that was just like a symbol of their new identity because they're inside of a covenant with God. Um, so I'm just going to call him Abraham, even though that doesn't officially happen for a few chapters. It so will would be way less confusing. So Abram, Abraham, they're the same person. Abraham is just his covenant name. Uh, God comes to Abram and says, I want to I make you into a mighty people. Now, Abraham is old. His wife is old. They've never had a child. And at this point in the story, he's actually sort of making plans for who he's going to name as his heir. Because if you get old enough that it's pretty unlikely you're ever going to have children, they had some other social mechanisms in place to decide who got all of your stuff. And essentially it was usually like your head serving, which is what Abraham was going to do. So, But God comes to him and says, if you follow me, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham says, okay. And then as you read through the rest of Abraham's story, you actually see how he continues not to see the full big picture of what God is doing. At first he says, okay, well, I'm going to make my servant, uh, I'm going to make him my heir, and then I guess he's going to be the one who's the great nation. And then God comes back, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, I'm really old, I don't know if you knew that, but okay, you're God, do whatever. And so then a few more years go by, and Abraham's talking to his wife, and he's like, God said we were going to have a son, and we haven't. So Sarah goes, well, he probably meant that you should have a son with my slave, which is again something that they did back then, and the slave would be considered a full heir. And, and Abraham's like, yeah, you're right, that must be what God meant. So they have a, uh, they, uh, he, he has a son with Hagar, who is Sarah's uh, slave. And then God comes back, he's like, no, actually, your wife Sarah is the one that's going to have a son. Sarah laughs um, because that's pretty hilarious because she was like 90 years old at that time, right? So that is, you know, if anyone else said that 90 year old lady's pregnant, we'd all probably laugh. Right? Or be like, oh, like something, something, something. that doesn't happen, so something's weird. Um, they have the same kind of a reaction to that, right? And then uh, lots more years go by, and then finally Sarah becomes pregnant, and she has a biological son of Abraham, and that is the line through which Abraham's covenant is realized. Uh, now, the reason I drew this weird picture up here is this is supposed to be a cow upside down and cut in half, which probably is super obvious to everyone. Um, there's actually this really... <laughs> yeah. See. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. <laughs> um, my drawing skills are legendary. Uh, so there's this really interesting scene in Genesis chapter 15, and this is this is the second time God comes back to reaffirm the covenant with anyone. Okay. And the way they did covenants Now remember, you're living in a world where there's no pen and paper, right? They're they're an illiterate culture, and so anytime you made a, a public covenant like this, there had to be some kind of, well, the way, they, the way they made it public was by doing a big, flashy show of it, so that everyone was watching, and everyone saw it, so then it, you were sort of held accountable to that covenant by the community of people that witnessed it, right? So, so this ceremony was actually a normal kind of a covenant ceremony. There's other places in the scriptures, they talk about this kind of thing happening, and basically what they would do is they would cut a cow in half, and then like spread it apart, and so you can imagine all the We don't have to go into details, right? You know, okay, what's in the middle there, right? And then they would walk through the middle of the stuff, um, and that symbolically said to everyone watching, if I break this covenant, this is what you can do to me. Okay, that was the purpose of that ceremony. Now, what's really interesting about this particular ceremony, there's a couple things. One is that, as you can probably imagine, it was typically not the more powerful person who walked through the entrance, right? It was usually the less powerful person. So if uh, a king and a lesser king are making a treaty, or a king is kind of like a noble or something like that, or like a more powerful patriarch, you know, like the, it was the less powerful person that usually had to do this, right, to show that they would be more faithful to the more powerful person. In this, particular, uh, in this particular ceremony, I want to read to you what happens. Uh, I put it on your paper, though. And you can read the whole story in Genesis 15. It's really interesting. But it says, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. So what actually happens here is that God is the one who walks through the middle of the entrance. Right? And that's fascinating because what that is essentially saying is that God is taking the harm that is implied in this covenant. God, obviously much more powerful, obviously one that is Initiating the covenant, the one that Abram is swearing allegiance to, is not usually the one that would do this. Usually it would be Abram. But in this, in this scenario, very unusual, very countercultural, God is the one who, who walks through the carcass. I can't believe we haven't had more sermon illustrations of this. Uh, and, and, and that's what that said to everyone is that God is the one who is taking the, the responsibility for the covenant. God is the one who is accepting. If the covenant gets broken, God's the one who's accepting the harm. Uh, and again, it doesn't—it doesn't take a lot to f- see how Jesus fits into this. Did they have the they well, no, that's the uh, the torch and the torch and the bowl is how that's implied there. Well, so it just kind of moved between. Yeah, they floated through, I guess. is so. well, that before or after? didn't Abraham go into a deep sleep? Yeah, uh, yeah. It says here Abram saw him. He said it, it saw the sight of. Could have. Like he's hallucinating or dreaming or, yeah. What was the covenant again? What this covenant you? is that God, if, if Abraham follows God, it basically if Abraham says, you're the God I'm going to worship and follow, then, then God will make Abraham's descendants into a nation that will bless the whole world. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yes, Abraham did fall into a sleep. You're right. That's part of the, the earlier part of the story. And so, whether he woke up and saw this, or whether this is in a dream, the animal had been split before he went to sleep. Yeah. yeah. So there was an animal carcass laying there. Whether he dreamed that God walked through it, or whether God physically sort of—however God physically does stuff—right, walked through it. Um, the 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 implication of the text is that this is a binding covenant on God. You know, whether it was in a dream or whether God Abraham perceived it, God intended it to be a commitment to. to was the significance of Abraham being put into this yeah I don't know. it. was just an opportunity God took to make a presentation to That was just you know, it'd be interesting to go back and compare the language. It wouldn't surprise me if the deep sleep is the same kind of deep sleep Adam was put in when the woman was fashioned out of his side. I mean, they, throughout the Bible, there's, yeah. you know, Jacob's yeah. Yeah. This seems like a fascinating series, Patty. It might show up sometime. No, sir. I mean, I'm that, that, I didn't mean that's snarkily. Like that's a, it's an interesting thing that, yeah, what happens when people in the scriptures enter into these deep sleeps and how they're, what their encounters with God look like. Seems to be some kind of encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So another thing it does though is it takes a ram out of the equation. In other words, if he was trying to fool everybody into, uh, he set something up that looked like the thing passed through the. But if he's in a sleep and he's been out of it, and everybody knows he's been out of it, and then all of a sudden this stuff happens, you, you can't say, "Well, you just set something up. There was wires or, <laughs> or something." <was laughs> he's been snoozing in the tent the whole time. He's yeah. Yeah. I was not ever picturing other people there. I didn't either. Oh, yeah, this is going to be be a public thing. When they split – yeah. Yeah. See, so the thing is – so the the statement was that she wouldn't even have pictured other people there. Um, Abraham, being a patriarch, and at this point we know he's relatively wealthy, he probably had a retinue of – we're talking 70, 80 servants, slaves, uh, fieldsmen. I mean, we're just – Lots and lots and lots of people, and he would have always been in the middle of the camp as the patriarch. I mean that that would have been as much for protection as anything else. So someone as powerful and reputable as Abraham is never going to go off by himself, unprotected, undefended. So an, an ancient reader reading this text would have assumed, uh, it, sort of, I like, uh, trying to think of a good a, a good modern day analogy. I guess it would sort of be. Uh, I can't think of a good one. I was gonna say like in your living room, except in our living rooms we can be in our living rooms alone, right? This would have been—I mean, it would have been if you're in a campsite with 80 people camping around you, and it's the fire pit in the middle of the camp. I mean, that's that's where this was all happening. And and uh, the the earlier part of the ceremony happened during the evening normal you know celebration time that everyone would have shared. So yeah, go ahead. Is this before? Don't hold me to this I think it's before. Uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story yeah the Sodom and Gomorrah story isn't until uh, Genesis 18. this is Genesis 15 but a lot does separate a, some good I'd have to go look at that someone can look at it if you Sure yeah I mean and again there's the, the implication is there's lots of witnesses. there's lots of people that would see this that that would see this covenant between Abraham and God. So okay, good with Abraham. So again, we have the covenant with Adam that we're going to be God's images in the world. We have the covenant with Noah that God will not abandon creation no matter what. And then we have the covenant with uh, Abraham here that Abraham's descendants will be a nation that blesses the whole world. Okay? Now let's go to Moses where it gets real interesting. Okay, so if you fast forward through your biblical history, Abraham does in fact have lots of descendants. They wind up in Egypt because of a famine. They stay in Egypt because it was sort of like the... Most happened in place in the entire world at that time. And uh, several hundred years later, they are enslaved, and there are even more of them. Uh, And so uh, God raises up a person named Moses, who is going to free the Israelites from slavery. Uh, You have probably seen this movie. You've probably heard these stories. There's ten plagues. There's the crossing of the Red Sea. There's tons and tons and tons of stuff going on. And it all culminates with them at Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai is a mountain in the desert between Egypt and the Holy Land, and at this particular point, uh, God has instructed Moses to bring the people there to camp around the base of the mountain. Uh, if you you can Google image search it, uh, it's not a it's not a it's not like a, a Everest or something like that. It's not even a Nozark Mountain. It's Small. Uh, so, uh, it, it, you know, camping a, a whole, you know, several thousand people camping around the base of it would, would not be out of the question. Uh, and then God tells Moses, okay, we're going to make this covenant. So, here's what I want you to tell the people. And, and I think I put this for you in your notes. Yeah. God says to the nation of Israel, to all of Abraham's descendants, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, keep my treaty, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all of the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And then he says, this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses takes that. He says, here's here's the deal God wants to strike. Here's the treaty God wants to make. If you will be his people, if you will follow the terms of his treaty, then you will be his special people. You'll be his kingdom of priests. And the people say, yeah, we want to do that. So then the next day, God actually speaks to the whole – so this uh, – this whole giant firestorm, that's why you drew the lightning and that was close I could. This clouds and fire and all this stuff descend on the top of the mountain. Okay, so they know that the presence of God is on top of Mount Sinai. And then God speaks verbally to the entire nation of Israel for the first and last time in human history. And he gives them what we now call the Ten Commandments. Okay, which are essentially the terms of the covenant, right? They're the terms of the treaty. God says, okay, you said you would be my people. This is what it looks like to be my people, right? Don't have any other gods. Don't make idols. Don't take my name in vain. Honor, You know, all the, the ten. And the people are so terrified by this, by God speaking to them, that they pull Moses aside and they're like, hey, love the mountain. Love not being slaves anymore. Could you make sure that God never, ever talks to us again, ever, because we're pretty sure if he does, we'll die. And so Moses goes to God, he's like, yeah, they're they're terrified of you. They don't ever want to hear you speak again. And God goes, okay, we'll do it their way. And so from that point forward, God only speaks through Moses, and obviously through different prophets and stuff like that, right? But God never again speaks to all of the people directly because they're scared, because they're scared of him. And again, I just want to point out, we're going to come back to this at the end, but that is, again, that's the same thing we saw with Noah's coming. is God meeting them where they are. And, and God wanted to have that verbal communication with them, but they didn't want that. And so God goes, okay. So yeah, JR. I would, do you think, uh, I'm asking you to answer a tough question Okay. There, but do you think a lot of our troubles in the Middle East now is because in the Arab world or the Islamic world, they recognize that Orthodox Jews Jews, the ones that still feel like they're part of Abraham it says very clearly we're giving you from the river of Egypt, the Nile to the Euphrates that they're going to make that claim good and so they know that that's the long term intention of Israel to to take all the lands to the Euphrates. It could, I mean that wouldn't surprise me if that's a lot of the problems. I mean, again, there's so – is that part of it? Probably, sure. I mean, there's so many, so many things that go into the, the conflict between Muslims and Jews over there. But um, this is one of the Orthodox Jews. Oh, yeah. they And and you see that even in, in the, the nation of Israel's policy, like land expansion policies today. You know, They see how they're treating the Palestinians and the kind of lands they're taking from the Palestinians and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, certainly probably some of the – at least the Egyptian – Muslims or some of the Iraqi Muslims are nervous about that, right, the people that would be in, in the way of all of that. Um, sure, uh, yeah. A- anyone, anyone, if someone else wants to take some of the church, you're going to get mad about it, right? And if you think someone has the, what's rightfully yours, you're going to get mad about that, too. And so, uh, yeah, but absolutely. the Muslims believe that Ishmael has mm-hmm. the birthright, Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that's why they want to get rid of the Jews. Yeah, sure. So they can possess what God... Yeah, Yeah. everyone everyone thinks God gave it to them. Right? And everyone looks to their own Bible or equivalent thereof to justify that. Um, And, of course, we think we're right, and the Jewish people think they're right, and the Muslim people think they're right. And, of course, we know we're really right because we're (laughs) us, you know. Um, But... This uh, yeah. it's such a complicated issue, and as long, as long as I mean, I watched a debate one time between a, a Christian seminary professor and a Muslim imam, and what it got down to was the Christian was like, well, the Bible says, and the Muslim was like, well, the Quran says, and he was like, well, I don't believe your dumb Quran, and he was like, well, I don't believe your dumb Bible, you know, like, and that's not a conversation, that's just yelling at each other, you know, like, there has to be some way to have some real dialogue, you know, and I don't, yeah, I, it's it's a mess. But yeah, all of all of the stuff we're talking about tonight feeds into all of that. Absolutely, it does. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily is the only cause of it, but I think certainly it's in there. So, uh, okay, good. Any more questions about Middle Eastern politics? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not qualified to talk about this. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, uh, so, so a few things. A few things that I don't want to comment on here first of all so because the israelites will not listen to yahweh speak anymore right moses goes up mount sinai he's up there for 40 days and while he's up there uh, he receives what is what we now call the torah okay which uh, which means instruction or way we often most often translate it law so this is where you say moses brought the law down from mount sinai if you ever heard that this is what we mean that Moses brought down the law, and what what the Torah is, is basically the terms of that treaty. Uh, this is why a lot of scholars treat the Ten Commandments as the summary of the Torah, right? Because this is what God spoke. God kind of gave him the big picture, of the overview, the ten bullet points, right? And then and then Moses went up and got the fine print. You could sort of think of it like that, right? Um, this is also why. Uh, people sat around people I mean like teachers and scholars and stuff like that they would sit around and debate and discuss about what is the can we get it down to one right we got I mean God got it down to 10 but can we can we what's the one greatest commandment you know what's the one commandment that sums up all the others um, and you've heard right uh, someone asked Jesus that question he responded uh, part of the unsurprising part was where he said he quoted what's called the Shema, which is a prayer the Jewish people say every day. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Jesus then added, love your neighbor as yourself, and he said, these are the great commandments. So he didn't say these are the two, these are the one. In a different part, he also said, love your neighbor as I have loved you, which is a little, which is exceptionally different than love your
1: neighbor as as you love yourself. Yeah. I love myself. I wouldn't die for my
0: neighbor. <laughs> and he, sure. And he, sure. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. So I think I, you know, I always try to remember the love of your neighbor as I have loved you. Yeah. Love, if we're gonna be. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Um. And we're gonna come back to this next week when we talk about Jesus more. But again, what I really want you to see here is that all all of what we call the Torah, the law, those first, you know the first five books that we've had, like, Especially like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all those. If you've ever tried to read the Bible through in a year, the places where you get stuck and you're like, "What is all of this?" Right? Those are what they they would consider those sort of summed up by the Ten Commandments. And what they what they understood the law to be was the terms of the treaty, right? When God said, "Do you want to live as my people in my world?" And they said, "Yes." He said, "This is what it looks like." But why in the world would it take forty days to get Ten Commandments? No, no, it wasn't the Ten Commandments. It was the, because remember, God spoke those. It was everything else. So it was a whole five books. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, probably more like the, the law part of it, right? The Leviticus. And that's what yeah. in, in the New Testament referred to as the Mosaic law. Right, yes, very much so, yeah. So you're talking about basically everything in Exodus past this chapter 20, um, all of Leviticus, a good part of Numbers, and, and all of what we would call Deuteronomy. Yeah. And that's I was yeah. When you were right. Yeah. So. Um, but didn't he come down with the tablets? Yeah. he's well. Oh, really? is that yeah. Charles and Heston came tablets. down with the tablets. <laughs> 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 no, he does. Uh, yes. No. That's right. That's right. Um, he comes down with he comes down with tablets written on them. And so he here's what happened. So so again, put yourself in the Israelites. You know, you're you're sitting here. There's fire on the top of a mountain. God spoke, and you were so terrified you thought you were going to die. Moses is like, hey, guys, I'm going to go up there. I'll be right back. He walks up into the clouds and the fire, and then he just doesn't come back for 40 days. And you have to wonder, yeah, seriously, seriously, at what point do you start going like, uh? So is there a contingency plan if Moses was, you know, like burned alive? Because how would they know, right? God said, if anyone else comes up here, I'm going to kill you. So is like, how do we know? How can we tell? And so they convince Moses' brother Aaron. They're like, hey, we're in a tight spot. Moses isn't coming back. He's not answering his cell phone. Could you build us a golden calf? Which they had just been told not to do, right? Commandment number two, don't build any images. And so they convince Aaron to do it. He builds the golden calf. God and Moses are on top of the mountain. God is like, Moses, do you know what they're doing? And he's like, I don't know, camping. And God goes, No, they're building idols. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to start out. You're going to be my new Abraham, right? Your descendants, mighty nation. You know the, you know the, you know the bit. And Moses is like, Don't, don't do that, God. Like, don't you remember how you love them? And so God agrees to spare them. Moses comes down, when he sees it with his own eyes, he breaks the tablets, right? And then addresses the idol situation, goes back up, gets new tablets. Um, yeah, so that's all. Yeah. So all of those Leviticus solid stuff are on tablets? Apparently. Yes. I thought that was going to be. What's that? I always thought it was. They passed all that. Well, he brought something down on tablets, and it would sure be a waste to just put the Ten Commandments on there because he'd already told them. That. So we don't know what was exactly on the tablets, um, if it was maybe like the major headings or something like that of the law. I don't, we don't know. But he brought tablets, broke them, had to go back up and get some more. Those tablets, as Beth mentioned, go into the Ark of the Covenant, which we're we'll getting to in a moment. Um, but, sorry, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's great. Um, The important part here is that what they get at Sinai is the the terms, I keep going back to that, the terms of the covenant, right, the terms of the treaty. And so I want to zoom out for a second and get kind of a really big picture to look at exactly what's going on here. Now remember that the original plan was for God to have a picture of himself, an image of himself in creation, right? That was the plan. What we're getting on Sinai, it, what we're getting on Sinai, is God's movement towards restoring that because what God has told them they're going to be is a kingdom of priests in the world, and a priest is a person who represents God to the people, and the people to God, right? They're like a they're like a mediator or a uh, well, mediator is probably the best term, right? And so what God is giving them is how to live as his image in the world, right? And what's really cool, maybe a, a different word could be frustrating, about the Torah is it's all what we would call case law, right? There's very little broad, sweeping theological claims. Like the Ten Commandments are about as good you know, just don't murder people, right? Don't steal stuff, don't lie, keep the Sabbath day, like those are kind of broad sweeping, like it's, they apply pretty much everywhere all the time. Everything else is very specific to this particular tribal nomadic culture, right? And if you read through, you, you get that sense. And that's why, that's why for us reading the law, reading the Torah can be so frustrating because we don't live in this culture. So it's like if a neighbor has an ox and he the ox slips in a hole on your neighbor's property uh, or on your property, this is what should be done. But if the ox slips in a hole on their property, but it's your ox, but it used to be there, you know, and it's just like all this, and you're like, how, who, who cares? And how is this supposed to be scripture? How is this supposed to, you know, form me? But the the idea behind it was that this is this is a picture of what God's people in God's world looks like. And so the people who studied the law were expected to do just that. They were expected to kind of go over and over and over all of these different laws because they believed that the more you studied the law the more you could get a picture of the mind behind the law right you'd actually start to learn how God thinks and the sort of unique logic of God's worldview the more you sort of see all of these different ways that God's uh, that God's path looks in the world right you could start to discern an order and a logic behind it and so that's exactly what they did if you were uh, if you were an older person you were expected just to like Read the law and know it and study it over and over and over, and then you uh, you would all sit. And we've talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. You'd all sit right at what they called the city gate, but that was where all the elders sat. And if something happened, right, like if Creighton and I had some kind of a thing, we would go to the elders and we would say, "Here's our scenario. Here's what happened. What's what's the law in this case?" And then if there wasn't, you know, like a specific case, if it was one of those, what we would consider like a gray area, something the law didn't cover, all of these people who spent all of their time studying the law, they would argue about it together, and they would reach an agreement about what God would want done in this situation. So it was meant to be a very practical, very embodied kind of a law. And and, and what it really was, was an invitation to study and to know God better and better and better and better. Does that make sense? Who was interpreting this, this to them and telling them this is what it means? Yeah, Moses, all the leaders, yeah, I mean, actually, and just before just before this whole sign, I think Moses had recruited a bunch of sort of, like, like lieutenants or helpers, right, to help him, because he just had so many people coming to him all the time, and his father-in-law was like, look, man, just recruit some dudes that, you know, are smart and are wise, and get them to handle, like, all the regular stuff, and if there's just some, like, big, crazy thing, like, they can still come to you, but you don't need, you know, and so, yeah, there's there's a whole... You know, there's like a whole culture of people that are being given this Yeah, exactly yeah, very much. This, this is the beginning of a nation. this is a, I mean, yeah, because remember before this they've been slaves, right? They hadn't had anything that would resemble a government ever, because when they went to Egypt, it was just Jacob and his, his extended family. so it was just like one big, huh? Yeah 70, 150 people, you know something I mean it wasn't a it wasn't a, a government. it was just it was just like a, a people. And so when they leave Egypt, not only have they been slaves for hundreds of years, living under uh, like a dictatorship, right, but they've never ever had a government, they never needed one, they were never a people. And so yeah, this is, this is the beginning of the nation. and so they're being given all of these things. But again, nation, for them, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's way more bottom up than this right For them it started at the family and at the house and it kind of it kind of built up from there. So the, that's why the oldest male, the father, the patriarch, that's why he was expected to be a student of the law, and that's why, and, and all of the other patriarchs, they were meant, they were expected to be students of the law. This is why, if you read the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, right, this is why it keeps talking all the time about how great old people are, because it was assumed in their culture that if you're older, that mainly what you're doing is studying the law and acquiring. You, do, you have not only the wisdom of your life experience, but you have all of this wisdom that's come from years of being a student of the Torah. Right. And so what it means to be wise in the ancient world is actually to be living the way God created you to live. Right. It means it means you're following the Torah It means you're following the way that God gave you. And so that's why that's why they say wisdom leads to life and folly leads to death, because it's the same terms that God established in Genesis two and three. Right. God's way leads to life. Wisdom leads to life. Folly, foolishness, human ways lead to death. It's the same framework that we had in Genesis one, and it's over now in Exodus. It goes all the way through, all the way through the rest of the scripture. So, and we'll get to that in a second. So what what they understood was that when you know when Moses goes up Mount Sinai, what he's receiving is a path to wisdom, right? He's receiving uh, God's, he's receiving God's wisdom. He's receiving the path for humanity to follow, but. It's going to be embodied in this particular nation of people. they are going to be priests that are representing this way to everyone else. So God's plan is, again, that still he will have an image of himself in the world. It's just going to look like the nation of Israel. And then when the rest of the world looks at Israel, they're supposed to see what God's people look like, what the way to life looks like, what a wise life looks like, writ out in the lives of the people of Israel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I want to show you a couple things real quick. Um, yeah, we're doing all right. Okay, so in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a woman, and she talks of herself as uh, a part of the making of creation. So uh, there on, on Proverbs, in Proverbs 8, and I'm just giving you 22 and 30. You can go read the whole chapter on your own. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, but it says, wisdom is speaking here. and She says, the Lord formed me... From the beginning, before he created anything else, and then she goes on to talk about all these different things that God made and how she helped God make them, and then she says, "I was the architect at His side. I was His constant delight, rejoicing always in His presence." Okay, so Israel and and most of the most of the cultures in the ancient world had this idea, right? But Israel had this idea of divine wisdom, right? That wisdom isn't just being smart, but that wisdom is actually living in tune with the way you were created to be, the way God designed you to be. So a silly but helpful example would be that nature has a rhythm and a pattern to it, right? We usually call these things laws of nature, like water flows downhill, right? We understand gravity and all all those kinds of things. Um, If you were to drive by a tree, and it was a perfectly healthy tree, but its roots were growing up into the air and its leaves were growing into the ground – you would stop and be like, what's wrong with this tree? And you got out. And if it was a perfectly healthy tree, if it wasn't a dead tree, someone would have flipped upside down, you would immediately, like, call Guinness or something like that because you know that that's not how trees work, right? There is a way that plants grow, and it's roots in the ground, leaves in the sky, and all – like, that, that's what they do. That's, that's how they work. There's a and, – and you probably never even stop to think about the fact that there's, like, a rhyme and a reason to that because it's just so obvious and taken for granted. The difference, is, the difference with humanity is that we are the only species, the only creation, that can live against our wisdom. Right? We're the only species that can choose not to live the way we were created to live. That's what we call sin. That's what we talked about last week. right? And so really, when Moses goes up Sinai, what he's getting is a written record of the wisdom of God. Right? A, a written record of the way God designed humanity to live. In the world, and what so what he's bringing back down to Israel is this is the way God created all of us to live. This is the way that leads to life. Follow it. Does that make sense? So so the Mosaic Covenant is this Torah. It's this instruction. It's this way of life. Right. Now we usually call it the Law. This is another thing I wanted to make sure I got before we moved on to David. We usually call the Torah the Law. In fact, if you look in your, if you have a Bible that you bought, like at a Christian bookstore or something like that or whatever, if it breaks up the Old Testament, it'll probably even call the first five books the Books of Law, right? Because that's how we usually translate Torah. Now, I don't particularly love that translation because then we get into this like. Um, you even hear people talk about how how for the Jewish people, the law was this like chain that like dragged them down and convinced them of how bad they were. And it was this big burden that they had to bear because a lot of us, that's how we think about laws, right? We don't like laws. We, don't, we think of them as like rules and regulations and we kind of like, oh, and they might be like – they might be a necessary evil, but they're still evil We're like uh, – you know. And the Jewish people just didn't think of the Torah that way. Uh, for them, it was a blessing. For them, God chose them out of all all of the peoples in the entire world to reveal his way to. And so for them, it was a profound privilege to bear this image of God into the world. It was a profound privilege for them to aspire to keeping God's law, God's Torah, God's way. And the way we know that is because some aspiring poet in the Old Testament wrote a ginormous love poem to the Torah. And we call it Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. Again, if you've ever been reading through the Bible, you've groaned when you got to Psalm 119 because you knew it was coming. Right? And all Psalm 119 is is one long love song about how much this person loves what we call the law and how much they consider it a privilege and a blessing. And so I just wanted to read a little bit of Psalm 119 for you because so you get a flavor of it. This, the poet says, I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. What weird enthusiasm for that, right? Uh, I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. And it goes on and on and on like this for many, many more verses. right? Hundreds of verses. And this person just praising and celebrating what we call the law. So that's that's why we should just be careful how we think about these first five books. right? They're not... A burden, they're a blessing. And in fact, Jesus himself says, we'll talk about this next week, right? He says, I did not come to abolish the Torah. I came to fulfill it. And not one little bit of it will be set aside. So. I have a yeah. Has it ever crossed your mind that when God says, you know, he that like, comes first will be last, and he is last will come first, the Jewish people, weren't they like the smallest group of people? Yeah. I mean, they were a group of slaves, right? Yeah. In
1: that way,
0: yeah. Yeah. That's a consistent. So Angie's asking this this idea that Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. And is, is this a pattern that we see in the scriptures? And absolutely it is. Uh, God actually throughout Genesis consistently chooses the younger sons instead of older sons. He's constantly using the weak to uh, shame the powerful. But yeah, all, all through the Jesus himself, right? That 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 salvation that rescue would come through crucifixion is foolish. You know, that, that's, the sh- that's a shameful, terrible way to die. And the idea that your rescuer, your champion, would be tortured to death is silly, except it's not in God's economy. Right? So absolutely, yeah, that's that's very much. And you see that here. Israel started out as slaves, and then God makes them into a mighty nation. And God does it, not Israel themselves. Right? And that's that's clear. So, yeah, very much. Very good. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then last, I wanted to close with uh, close the part on Moses. With a comment from Deuteronomy, this is the end. This is kind of the end of the law. This is uh, so we have to fast forward a little bit more. They're getting to the land that God promised Abraham. They have to wander in the desert for forty years, and they, so they get to the end. Moses is not going to go in with them. He's going to stay in the wilderness and, and die. And so he gives, he, he kind of gathers them all together one last time and re uh, basically re gives the law. He re he re gives all of the Torah. He says it all again for all of them. And so this is at the very end. And it's a great reminder of the purpose of all of this, of the purpose of Moses' covenant. God says, Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. And then I skip down to verse 19 and 20. Today I have given you a choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth, right? All of creation. I call on creation. To witness the choice you made, oh that you would choose life, and that, you, that your descendants might live. So again, it's the same, it's the same choice that was given to us in, right, life or death, life or death, and God's way is life, and everything else is death. Uh, okay, actually, before we get to David, we need to talk about the tabernacle because this is the other major feature besides the Torah. The tabernacle is the other major feature that comes out of Sinai. Tabernacle—it's uh, a fancy word that just means tent of meeting—and this was essentially. the the way that God gave Israel to be with him. So he comes to them on top of a mountain, but they're obviously not staying in the wilderness, not staying on this mountain. And so uh, God gives them a way to safely interact with him uh, while they're in the wilderness. And this is the tabernacle. So it is a tent. It was set up like a big rectangle, and then there's a smaller square inside of that. Uh, What's really cool, really cool, maybe it's only cool to me because I'm a nerd, but it is really cool, is that the tabernacle and then later the temple that Solomon builds in Jerusalem is actually the exact same thing as the tabernacle. It plays the same role in their culture. It's just twice as big, and it's a permanent structure. The tabernacle could be broken down and moved whenever they, the you know, nomadically they moved, and then once they settled, they built a temple. But they're they're the same thing. You can write temple slash tabernacle, and anything you're going to say after that's going to be right, okay? unless you say it moves. Um, What's, re- what's really cool is that it is a micro-representation of creation, okay? So remember how we talked about uh, in the creation week that they saw creation as a giant temple. Well, when they built the tabernacle, it, they did the same thing. Like, it's like a micro-creation. And so outside in the front of it, you have a basin uh, full of water where people would wash their hands and stuff, like some ritual washing and stuff, and that represented the seas, like the seas of kind of the, the – well and stuff like that, right, the, the, the primordial seas. And then there are three levels. There's, like, the outside, kind of the, the where the seas are and stuff like that. Then there's, like, the earth level, which would be where, like, the priests can go, which, remember, the priests represent humanity, right? So that's, like, where the, where humanity is. And then the inside box is usually called the holy of holies, which is just a Hebrew way to say the holiest place. So you have, like, the not-holy place, and then you have the holy place, and then you have the really holy place. Okay, that's, that's all that was. The Holy of Holies, the holiest place, there's a square, it's got curtains around it and everything, there was a veil that separated it from the rest of the temple, and inside of that was what was called the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you sort of have an idea of this, right? But it, was just, it was a box, and inside it were the, the tablets that Moses brought down that he didn't break from Sinai. There was a jar of Manna, which was some stuff that they ate while they wandered in the wilderness. I think there was something else in there, too. staff. Oh, okay, the staff. There we go, thank you. So the staff that they used when they were in Egypt to do miracles and stuff. And then on top, the the, the ark was covered and had this top on it. Uh, and then there were these two things called cherubim. And they're not cute little babies, probably. We actually don't really know what they look like, but I'm pretty sure they were cute little babies. Um, and they had wings. They were some kind of angelic figure. Uh, and the wings were pointed at each other. There's like one on either side of the lid that pointed at each other. And when everything was set up and ready to go, the physical presence of God would descend either as a flame or as a cloud, depending on if it was day or night. And it would sit on top of the Ark of the Covenant between those wings. And so the top of the Ark of the Covenant became known as the mercy seat, right? Because that's where God that, – that was actually where the physical presence of God on earth would dwell with his people, and it was so it was in, that was the, that's why this was called the holiest place, right? And that's why it had to be kept separate because our sinfulness makes God's holiness deadly, right? Um, and there there are stories in the Old Testament, really unfortunately, Like one of the ones that always bothered me when I was a kid was there was a time when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant somewhere. It's just on a wagon. And it hits a pothole, and the ark starts to fall off, and so some well-meaning dude reaches out and catches it and keeps it from falling, and he's struck dead. And so I was like, man, God's like a big jerk, like the guy who was just trying to help, and then he's smiting him dead? But that's not how the ancient Israelites understood it. For them, what they understood very clearly was that God's holiness is so potent for sinful, for unclean people, that if we contact it, it will kill us. And that's exactly why... The tabernacle had so many so – what you could think of as, like, layers of security. Actually, like the, uh, the image of an airlock, right? That the tabernacle was, like, this, this kind of safe way to mediate between the unclean world and the holy God. Um, if you know any – I'm a big space nerd. If you know anything about space, like, you can't just open a door on a spaceship because everyone will die. You have to have an airlock that you can, like, kind of mediate between the vacuum of space and the pressurized, air-filled compartments of the spaceship. And the tabernacle and the temple really functioned in a lot the same way. They protected us and helped us to have a relationship with God, helped us to be able to engage with God in a safe way, safe for us. right? Obviously, it didn't hurt God either way. I mean, it was sad probably when people died. Um, But he wasn't in danger of anything. So if someone was completely pure and had no sin, if they touched it, they would have been a Probably. Yeah, well, and actually what we see, so there was was a a ceremony that we – Probably don't have time for. Called the Day of Atonement, and there was one priest, the high priest, who one day a year it was his job to go into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, and basically clean the Ark of the Covenant with blood, a sacrificed blood, because that was like symbolically washing the sin away and making sure that it stayed pure for God, right? So that God could continue to dwell there with His people, and they would actually there's there's our, there are uh, we're not totally sure if this is true or not, but there are uh, there are legend legends probably not the right word, but there are uh, speculations that they would either tie a rope around his leg or that he would wear bells on his rope, maybe both, so that just in case they didn't get the ceremony quite right and he died while he was in there, they would know and then they could you know pull him back out. Um, so yes, yeah, Beth. Uh-huh. Just, you said that the whole thing was re- representation of creation. Yeah, so you have the three know. levels. Uh, if you read... So what the place like heaven, heaven, like heaven where God dwells, right? Uh, and uh, probably all of you have seen the menorahs, right, that they use it for all that. Well, those were actually candlestands that were in here, and they were designed to look like trees uh, with, with light. And so, again, these like they would represent the tree of life, right, and uh, stuff like that. And so it's, again, there's like whole books written on that. It's really fascinating, all of the symbolic logic that goes into that. But we'll, Why you should care about that, unless you're a nerd like me and just think it's inherently neat, uh, is that, again, they understood that what they did in their worship was intimately connected to the creation order, and that their sin had real-world consequences, and it needed to be dealt with for the world to continue to function the way God had intended it to. And so the same kind of partnership that God extended to the man and woman in Eden, this idea that they're to join in with God in co-cultivating the world and and to be God's image bearers that have dominion that was extended into the way they worshipped in the tabernacle and later in the temple that this was all like like that was all part of the same world for them. There wasn't some kind of disconnect between who Adam and Eve were and who they are right So okay and you can probably see some of the implications that has for our worship. We'll get there eventually one day uh, but we got to get we got to get to David first. okay any question other questions about the tabernacle of the Temple? Okay, here we go. David, then. Uh, The last covenant that is really important for us to talk about is the covenant that God made with David. So uh, we get to a point in Israel's history. They've settled in the land that God promised them. They've conquered all the other peoples there and driven them out. And they exist as sort of a loose confederation of tribes. So Jacob had 12 sons, and each of those sons becomes the head of one of the tribes. Okay, and so then when they settle later, each of the tribes is given a part of the Holy Land, a part of the land that God promised to Abraham as their space. And so if you are a fan of American government, think back to before we had the Constitution, when we had the Articles of Confederation, which were much. There was a much. There's practically no federal government at all. It was just all like again, the states were sovereign, and you know, Georgia got invaded by Florida. Virginia could be like eh, I'm good like no don't care you know or they could choose to help but that was all it was all up to the individual states um, that's sort of what the tribal governments were like they were loosely connected um, but we have lots of stories from the book of judges where one tribe would be invaded and the other tribe' kind of like yeah we're good we're not invaded so whatever um, and that went on for several hundred years until there came a point when the people decided they wanted a king and they specifically say the story's in 1 Samuel. They specifically say that they want a king because they want to be just like all of the other nations around them. Right at this point, they don't have king. and God even tells Samuel. God, it's a, I mean, you can you can tell God's feelings are hurt. God's like, but they have me. And Samuel's like, yeah, they say that's not good enough. They want a king. And God's like, but they have me. And Samuel's like, look, I'm just, don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you what they're saying. And God's like, all right, tell them that a king is a terrible idea, but if they want one, they can have one. And God says, okay, and Samuel says, okay, and they get a king. And so um, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But they get a guy named Saul. Saul's an okay king. Uh, He's not a great king. And he ends up losing the monarchy. And a guy named David receives it. God, God anoints David as the new king of Israel. And because of David's faithfulness to God, God makes a covenant with David that David will always have an heir on the throne of Israel. Okay, that, that David's house will always be in, uh, on the throne, okay? Now, what this sets up, there's a couple things it sets up. First of all, remember that in their culture, everything starts from the father and works out. So the, the father, the patriarch, is the most important person that you owe allegiance to, that you owe loyalty to. Then is your family, then is your clan, and then is your tribe, and then is your kingdom. And, and the further out you go, sort of the less the less obligation you have, right? Um, They understood their kingdom to basically be one big family. and The the king was the father, and the kingdom was the house. That's what we just said, the house of David, right? And so the king was actually, and this is where it gets really interesting, the king was actually sort of a, a representation of God to the people. The king's – part of the king's job was to rule and rule the way God would have the king to rule. And there was kind of an understanding that if you were a bad king, God would take your throne away. That's what happened with Saul, right? And if you were a good king, God would bless your kingdom. Now, there was one other institution – I think we're going to make it tonight. There was one other institution that rose up sort of as a response to the kings, to the monarchy, and that was the prophets. Okay, we have a lot of books in the Old Testament from prophets, and what a prophet, the prophets, uh, you'll actually hear a lot of scholars call them a counter-institution, okay? Because here's the problem. When, a, when you put a king on a throne, you're actually putting a fallible, limited, finite human being in a place of representation of God, who is not fallible, who is not finite, who is infinite, Right? That person is always going to fail. That person is going to rule in ways that are not just. Maybe not all the time, but at least sometimes because they're not perfect, right? And so the prophets, God God anoints prophets to rise up, and their job is basically to keep the kings in check. That's why they're called a counter institution, right? So what you see happening over and over and over in the books of the prophets is you see God coming to a prophet and saying, go say this to the king or go say this to the people. And what that means is that the people or the king are living or ruling in a way that is not God's way. And the prophet is coming to call them back. So a great example of this is after David has an affair with a married woman, and then has her husband killed so that he can marry her because he got her pregnant, right? Not his uh, probably his worst moment in in the scriptures, right? But he covers it all up, and he thinks everything's going to be fine, right? He's got it handled. God uh, God comes to his prophet, a guy named Nathan, and says, "Hey, you need to go." You need to go tell David that he's wrong and needs to repent. And so Nathan comes to David and actually has to confront him and tell him what you have done is displeasing to God and you need to repent and hear the consequences. And and he does that and David does repent and pays the consequences. Right. Uh, Now, there's another story where David goes to Nathan and he's like, hey, prophet, uh, I had this great idea. I want to build God a temple. I want to build God a permanent no, – no more of this tabernacle business, right? We're going to build a permanent place. And Nathan goes, yeah, that's a great idea, man. Good job. Go for it. And so he kind of gets like the rubber stamp, right? God, yeah, God's with us. Then that night, God comes to Nathan. And he's like, actually, David can't build my temple. I want his son to do it. And Dave, Nathan has to go back to David and say, hey, remember when I told you that God said this was okay? I should check first. It's not okay. Right? And, so, and, and so you can just see this interplay of monarchical power and prophet power, right? And of course, when you get wicked enough kings, they don't listen to the prophets, right? And there, there's some bad stuff that goes on. Um, but, but that was the role of the prophets, and it was, a, it was a role that was necessary because the people demanded that they have a representative of God. right? They said, we want, we want a king just like everyone else. We want someone who can represent God's will to us. Um, give us a king. Okay. Any questions about David, about the covenant with David? I want to do one more thing at the end of all of this. Okay, good, we have plenty of time for it. Uh, what I think is fascinating, as we move through the Old Testament, as we move through these covenants, now remember, we, we mentioned at the beginning that covenants are God's treaty with us. They're a way of formalizing a relationship with us. And it's always God meeting us where we are, but calling us to what we could be. Right, Meeting us where we are, but calling us to what we could be. So, in the beginning, we hid in the garden, right, in that first covenant. When it got to Noah, God acknowledged every inclination of our heart is sinful. When God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a child in your old age, they laughed at him. At Sinai, God spoke to us, and we said, "No." We'd rather someone else talk to God for us. That's too much. And then when it came to kingship, we wanted someone else to be the person that represented God because we didn't think that we could. And so as you move through the scriptures, you see over and over and over again how God comes to us and wants us to be what he knows we could be. And we keep falling back and saying, eh. You sound like we're the three stooges or something. Well, that's a nice way to say it. Yeah. yeah. So so I wanted to leave you with some questions. And, and actually, I'd, I'd really like you to sort of take them with you this week. I left them printed on the bottom of your paper. Um, because this, this is, I think, what's really scary about a relationship with God. You know, will you hide from God or will you be known? It's scarier to be known. That's why we hide. Will you believe God or will you laugh? You say, that's not possible. Will you listen to God or will you let someone else speak for him? Like a, you know, like a pastor. And will you be an image of God, a picture of God, or would you rather have a stand-in? We like to choose what's easier. We like to settle and let someone else do our hard work. And I can tell you, as a pastor, as one of those people who's paid to talk for God and paid to be spiritual for other people so that they can look, be a good example, right? Like, we like it on this end, too. There's a power trip involved. But the reality is that's not what God calls you to, it's not what God calls me to. And God knows that we can be better than we think we can be because God created us. God knows our potential. And so the question, the question always is, will we will we be who God thinks we can be or will we settle for who we think we can be? Will we allow God to define us or will we define ourselves or let other humans define us right who who gets to decide who we are and the beauty of the covenants is that God will meet us where we are but God will always call us to who we could be and so there's a beautiful there's a beautiful tension in that because I, if God only always called us to who we could be that would be just that you'd never feel like you were good enough. Right? We'd always feel like we had to keep um, earning and being and doing more and better. But, of course, if God only accepted us as we are, if God never called us to be what we could be, we would not never reach our potential. We would not never reach who uh, God created us to be. So we need both of those things. We need that radical love and acceptance, and we also need that radical love and challenge. Um, what do they call the woman? Isn't that like the woman? The, the loyal Oh yeah, the loyal opposition. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who loves us and is rooting for us, but also wants us to be who we can be. And so again, you know, we, we, I think I talked about Augustine last time, right? That our hearts will always be restless until we're, we're resting in God. Right. That And this is, this is what that is, that, that when we find ourselves in Christ, that's when we are who we could be, who we were created to be, that, that we find our true selves in Christ. yeah um, and, and we're going to be talking about all, all of these things that we're doing right now, whether some of you it's probably apparent to you, others it's not. All of these are big, giant arrows pointing to Jesus. And so what we're going to see next week when we talk about Jesus is how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things and what it means to say that our true selves are the selves we find in Christ. Um, but for this week, I, I would invite you to spend some time with those questions and really thinking about who, who defines who you are. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah, this is from a Wesleyan holiness perspective. Yes. Is this as well, all this stuff right here, like, that we just talked about today? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is – yes. yes. Um, no, I mean, there, I – let me look at what everything we did today. So the question is, is this Wesleyan holiness or is this more broadly Protestant? Um, most of these things – are going to be things that most traditions would probably agree with um, there were probably there was probably more division and dissension last week with or with sin and next week when we really get into talking about how Jesus rescues us um, but again in some ways in some ways you have to be careful that you're not splitting theological hairs because the bottom line is we are all sinful and Jesus did rescue us so yeah I mean, we can I guess we can fight about how it happened but that depends on how much it depends on how much of a theological nerd you are. You know, some of us some of us are fine with that. We're like, okay, I'm good, I'm out. So um, obviously since you're here, you're probably theolog theology nerds. But um, Okay, any questions about all of this? We did a lot tonight. Yeah, go for it. No. What's what, uh, was it okay back then to sleep with your wife's slave lover, Yes. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how is that not breaking a commandment? Um, well, you, okay, so the question is, was it okay back then, like with Abraham, to sleep with your wife's slave? Still wrong. The real, the real answer to that, and it's not a nice answer, it's not a pretty answer, but it's the real answer, is that slaves weren't considered people, they were considered property, and so it, it wasn't adultery, because that wasn't a real person. But, in not? but, not in God's right, exactly. but Okay, yeah, but remember you guys. Yeah, this, see, this is where it gets this is where it gets real and where it gets ugly. God meets us where we are and calls us to where we could be. And where okay. Abraham was was in a culture where that was okay. okay. It, I mean, it's not. you ever remember the time of Abraham was before law? Wow. Yes. Well, sure, but still not. I mean, again, we look at it today and we're like, I can't believe anyone ever did that. But the reality is, everyone did it if you were rich enough. I mean, they had polygamy, right? They had multiple wives, many of them. Um, Jacob had two wives and two concubines that he had his 12 sons by. In fact, he married the first wife, and his father-in-law pulled a fast one on him. He married the, married the one he didn't want to marry, so then he married the one he wanted to marry later, right? So, I mean, think about how you'd like being the ugly wife. Not fun.
1: That was, that was Leah, right?
0: I mean, she went around, like, everyone knew. Everyone knew that he didn't love Leah, that he wanted Rachel, oh, and that the only reason he married Leah is because he got tricked into it. What? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Marriage ceremony was a business ceremony. You paid the father with a dowry, and he paid you with a wife. Yeah, absolutely. But it's still yeah, absolutely. Yep. And this is what this is what I mean. I mean, okay, like it'd be neat if God treated everyone the same all throughout history. But again, what we've been seeing all through this is that God meets us where we are and calls us forward. He meets us where we are and calls us forward. So we can wonder ourselves in 300 years, what will people look back on us and be like, I can't believe it. Can you believe that an entire culture of people just did whatever? And of course, we don't know what that whatever is because if we did, we'd probably find it disgusting too, right? Dub-stuffing. Yeah, dub stuffing right? Yeah. Um, so that calls for some humility. It also calls for some grace, right? When we read these stories, we say – well, these were people who were probably doing the best that they could with what they knew. And we're doing the best that we can with what we know. Um, and and what's the, the good news about all of that is that God meets all of us where we are and calls us forward. Um, God gave a particular people a particular – and there, there are commandments in the Torah that today we would find reprehensible, right? I mean there are. Like if you don't know that. Read Exodus, you'll see them, they're gross, and we would look at them today and find them morally disgusting, but they were a step forward for the people of that time. And so it was, they looked more like God's people than the people around them, and that's what's important. And that's what we're doing too, we're trying to be a faithful picture of God, the best that we can. And again, I'm going to say it over and over, the best news is that God meets us where we are and calls us forward. That we're always, always, always becoming more like Him, not just individually, but as a culture too. So as a whole, hopefully as a whole race. So so next week we're going to talk about Jesus. Yeah. yeah. If Adam was humanity 1.0, Jesus is humanity 2.0. Okay, and so we're going to see how all, of this, how all of this comes together. And it's going to be super fun. It's probably going to be, might be the best week. I know I said that about Trinity, but Jesus might be the best week. So any last closing thoughts, questions, any of that? I want to pray for us. Otherwise, we can go. Okay. Well, you know, you guys know I'll be sticking around, so if you have anything else... Come chant me up. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for these treaties, these covenants that you've made with us. Uh, We're thankful that no matter where we are, you meet us there and then call us forward. Uh, We're thankful that despite our frailties and limitations, you love us and uh, you believe the best in us because you created the best in us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for continuing to invite us into life, even when we choose death. Uh, we love you a lot and we thank you for the story of your interaction uh, with our great, 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 great ancestors, uh, the nation of Israel. We thank, we're thankful that you have brought us into that story also and that we have the deep privilege uh, of worshiping you and of participating in what you created us to do originally. Help us as we go this week uh, to be brave enough to step into the life that you call us to, the life that you created us for, that we too would be faithful pictures of you and the world around us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who we cannot wait to talk about next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, We'll see you all. I'm sure I'll see you before then, but I'll see you at least next week, too.